All right. So, you know, we've been in this sermon series where we've been looking at the world that's behind and around Jesus. And last week we talked a little bit about the Roman Empire and its rule over Palestine in Jesus's day. And we talked um, pretty extensively about how Jesus and his people deeply resented the harsh and oppressive treatment that Rome gave them. And in that sermon, I just briefly mentioned that I read Jesus as having advocated nonviolence in response to that treatment. But I want to expand on that thought a little bit this morning because advocating nonviolence doesn't mean that Jesus advocated for people to simply stand by or to just kind of take the abuse that they were receiving. I think that Jesus understood the incredible power differential that existed right between Rome and between his people. And he knew that they were going to have to be creative and how they fought back against their oppressors. And so I think we can find a little bit of insight into the ways that Jesus thought about how to like fight the powers from the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter five through seven. There are portions of it found in Luke as well. And it's probably what Jesus is best remembered for aside from his death and resurrection. And so Jesus gave this sermon. He was up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So that was a big sea that's up in the northern part of Palestine. It's about where Jesus was from. It was an area that was known for uprisings against Rome. And so he's giving this sermon on the shores and his audience would have included people who either supported armed rebellion or who were at least probably sympathetic to it. And it included people who had been just absolutely battered by Rome's vicious policies. So let's read this little bit here from Matthew 5. Let me put this into the chat. 38 through 45. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your creator in heaven. All right, so we see this, this small list of things here, turning the other cheek, giving your coat away as well as your shirt walking an extra mile, loving your enemies. And on the surface, without any context, these can sound passive, right? It can sound like, oh, you get hit once, well, fine, let them hit you twice, right? But I, I don't think that that's what was going on here. So one scholar who offered, I think, a really helpful perspective on this passage is Walter Wink. And Wink argued that Jesus wasn't advocating for passive submission to violence, but instead here offering kind of a revolutionary way of resisting. So I want to start with the turning the other cheek bit. And so I've asked Rachel to come over and to help me illustrate the point. So she's going to make her way over here from the living room. I just want to point out with this too, that um, she's not actually going to hit me and we would never advocate anybody hitting another person, but she's agreed to, um, to help me with this. So I think the thing to note before we, we demonstrate it here, something that we need to understand is that left hands in Jesus's day and culture were only used for unclean tasks. 
right? And so you just, you didn't use it to touch another person. You didn't use it um, for most daily life. You could really only hit someone with your right hand. So for example, in the Qumran community, which we've talked a little bit about the Essenes, if you even gestured with your left hand, you would have to do 10 days of penance because that's how taboo using the left hand was. Now, it wasn't that strict for most of the people as it was for the Essenes, but that can just kind of give us an idea um, of just how restricted that was, right? So you didn't use your left hand, you used your right hand. And Jesus specifically says here, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, he didn't just say on the cheek, he said on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So Rachel, using your right hand, hitting my right cheek, how would you have to do that? Everybody see that? Like she has to hit me with her backhand, right? That's the only way to do that with her right hand. And in Jesus's day, the only, um, you only used your backhand on someone if they were of a lower social status than you. So if you would say, I mean, there are actually like rules around this. If you hit somebody who was of your same social standing. So if Rachel and I were of the same social standing in that day, if she hit me with her fist, that would cost her four zuz. Zuz are like um, tiny silver pieces. Um, if she hit me as a peer with the back of her hand, it would cost her 400 zuz, right? So big no-no, big penalty if you backhand somebody who is your social status, right? So the people that you would backhand would be people lower social status, and there was no penalty for that. Masters to slaves, men to women, husbands to wives, parents to children, Romans to Jews, right? So this is um, Jesus's audience would have understood that to use your right hand to hit somebody on the right cheek, we are looking at a power differential between the two people in that situation, All right? So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what would I, how would you hit me with your right hand then? If you hit my left cheek, yeah. yeah. Right, so she'd have to hit me with her palm up. Does that make sense? So it forces her to not just use her backhand, but to then look at me and to hit me as though I'm a peer, right? So the person turning the cheek, that's actually an act of defiance. And that becomes a subversive act, right? It says, look at my humanity. I am a person, I am the same as you. You don't get to act like you're better than me or like you're of a higher social standing. Right, so it's an invitation to the person who is doing the hitting to transform their heart, right? To say, oh, maybe I should look at them as though they are actually a person. And for the person who's being hit, which would have been, I'll let you go, I'm just like, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> the person who is being hit, it's an invitation, right? This is most of the people in his, like he would have been talking to it's a call to courage. It's a call to creativity. Um, it's really, it's a commitment to justice. And it robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate, and then it forces the oppressor to humanize. Does that make sense? Right, so then it goes on. It says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Let me put that back into the chat here. Right. And so this is referencing the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 24. So in the Jewish law, let's say I loan money to Peter, the apostle. So I would give him the money and then he would give me a coat of his as collateral, right? So he'd give me his coat as like a promise that he'll eventually pay me back the money. 
However, the law said that if Peter was poor and he only had two cloaks, right? If he had his shirt and then his coat over it, what he should do is he should give me the outer one during the day, but then I'd be required to take it back to him at night so that he had something more to wear to bed so that he wouldn't get cold. If Peter then fell further and further into debt and was unable to pay me back at all, then I might take him to court to get any assets that I could by legal means, right? His coat and whatever else. And this seems to be what's happening in this case. Debt was a major social problem um, in first century Judea, and it was a direct consequence of Rome policies, Roman policies. And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is that a person should expose the injustice that's taking place here, right, of poor people becoming even more destitute through excessive debt by stripping naked and handing over both of their coats, both the under and the over. Right. So in the culture of Jesus's day, looking on a naked person brought shame, but not to the naked person, to those who were looking at them. Right. That's an important point. Looking at a naked person brought shame, but not to the naked person. It was shame to those who were looking at them. So by stripping naked, the one who is in debt is essentially just saying, look, you've already taken me for all that I have through unjust, though legal means so just go ahead and just take it all and feel the shame of it look at me right you have everything except my body so what what is it you're going to take that next and i think this little line this bit of teaching probably would have made jesus's audience giggle a little bit but that's what effective nonviolent resistance is supposed to do right it can reveal the absurdity of what is happening um, and it can highlight the truth of what's happening and put those two things down into the chat there. It reveals absurdities and highlights the truth. So I thought I'd give a couple of, of just real world examples of this working effectively. So under apartheid in South Africa, there was a situation where the white authorities were looking to come and shut down a black shanty town. And so what the, the white soldiers did was they waited until later in the morning when all of the men had gone off to work and mostly it was women and children who were left. And then they announced to the women that they had five minutes to gather their things and then they were going to come in and just bulldoze the homes. And so what the women did was they got out in a line and they stood in front of the bulldozers and they stripped naked. And the soldiers left. And I think Jesus would have loved it. And if you do a little bit of research um, into it, South Africans have a long history of using nudity to protest colonial rule, I think because they knew that um, some of the colonizers were particularly a little bit um, embarrassed by nudity. And so that's been an effective way of protesting. Another example that I could think of was um, during some of the earliest Black Lives Matter protests in 2015, 2016, there was a group of activists up in the St. Paul, Minnesota area and they went out and they stood in the middle of I-94 and they shut the interstate down for a time. And so that was using nonviolent means to help people just understand the absurdity of continually having to protest racial injustices decade after decade, right? And by absurdity, I actually mean like the tragedy and the frustration of it all. Because when I-94 was built back in the 1960s, it was intentionally built right through the middle of the largest black neighborhood in St. Paul. It was a middle-class community that was thriving. It was called the Rondo neighborhood. And so residents of the Rondo neighborhood, 
Um, they'd been offered insultingly low prices for their homes in order for I-94 to be built. And then the people who refused to accept the low offer and were just staying in their homes, they were then met with violence and taken um, and removed. And then the neighborhood was ultimately dispersed and it has never fully recovered to this day. So shutting down I-94 with protests in 2015 and 16, while annoying to some mostly white residents, was a creative nonviolent way of saying, this protest isn't just about police shootings, although it is that, this is also connected to the long history of racial injustices here. Like you might not remember, we remember, this is all the same story and this has not changed, right? And that's, that's how nonviolent resistance is meant to be used, right? It's help, meant to help us see what's actually happening it's made to actually help us connect the dots um, and to see the injustices that are lying underneath the surface. All right, and then going the extra mile. So in Jesus's time, Roman soldiers were legally allowed to ask subject peoples like the Jewish people of Palestine to carry their packs for one mile, but only for one mile because Rome didn't want subject peoples um, to feel so taken advantage of that they would revolt more than they already were doing, right? So there were severe penalties under the military law if a Roman soldier made a person carry a pack further than one mile. So what Jesus is saying here is throw them off their game, right? If you insist on taking a Roman soldier's pack an extra mile, it leaves them wondering why. Are you going to report them? Are they going to get in trouble? Are you insulting their strength? Are you kind of implying that maybe they can't carry that 60 pound pack on their own? It, it invites us to imagine a scenario where a Roman soldier is like pleading with a Jewish person to please give him back his things. And there's a little bit of like, who has the power now? Right, so by telling his followers to go that extra mile, Jesus is challenging them to use this legal requirement as an opportunity to assert their own power, to assert their dignity, and that they could demonstrate they weren't just a slave or a tool for the oppressor, but they were a person and they had agency and dignity and they can carry a pack an extra mile if they want to. Right, so Jesus believed that, um, you know, this eye for an eye mentality, he could see this cycle of violence that that just rot and that that perpetuates itself. And so what he did was he called his followers to try and break that cycle by responding to violence um, creatively and in ways that invite people to change their hearts. And then at the end of the passage that, that we read this morning, Jesus instructed his followers to love their enemies. Right? So he was challenging them to show compassion and kindness to the people who wronged them. And he recognized that it's easy to love people who love us, right? It's easy to love people who are kind to us. But by loving our enemies, we can start to break down the walls of hostility and we can create opportunities then for reconciliation and for healing. And this can be a powerful way to promote peace and in our communities and in our relationships. Yeah, creative solutions, Deb. There are people who are very good at, at thinking creatively with nonviolent resistance. Um, and it can be quite powerful. So with that, we usually have a moment of meditation. And I sometimes put just a piece of the passage, but I thought this morning we would just 
give it a little bit of silence to let the Holy Spirit just talk to us about something that if there was anything that sort of surfaced um, in this passage and just give the Spirit space to have some dialogue with us. And I'll let, I'll let us know when that time is up. Amen. You know, as we were having our moment of silence, I thought it, I think it's sometimes helpful to add after a sermon like that, that, you know, there's, um, there's a larger landscape of thinking within Christianity about how to, uh, how to respond uh, to violence and to warfare. Right. And that I do tend theologically to read Jesus as more pacifist or like just active peacemaking. Um, but there's also a pretty long history in Christianity of having to think a little bit differently, like just war theory and things, because guns weren't invented in Jesus's time and weapons of mass destruction. And so there's different um, sort of thoughts about the ethics of that and that there's room for a lot of that. And I usually try and add to that. I would never tell people who are being oppressed um, or assume to tell people what they need to do or not do to overthrow their oppressor. I just know how I read Jesus and that, that um, that's my best read on him in his situation and his time and in an ideal world. I think that this, I think it's effective way of, of being and embracing and is, um, yeah, something I lean into, but I would just say even personally that that can be a very difficult question to grapple with and that there is a wide variety of ways to grapple with that within our tradition. So with that said, um, I'd like to light our candles here as we enter into a time of corporate prayer. <clears throat> 